Father, your word says that those who know thy name will put their trust in you. We are thankful for the name of Jesus, which is the name which is above every name. He is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. And one day, every knee will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord. Every knee, not some knees, every knee will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord. We are grateful that because of the way you've worked in our hearts through the power of the gospel, the good news, that you've opened our blind eyes so that we can see the truth of the gospel, that we are not saved by works, but through the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus. You, uh, you've caused us to be born again, to be saved from our sin, and you've put us on a new path, one that is uh, challenging and difficult and uh, hard and at times utterly excruciating. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Some we absolutely never see coming. Uh, we look around at others who know you. They're not dealing with the stuff we're dealing with. They seem to have a pass in a particular area, but we're hurting and we're in trouble and we're discouraged and um, at times we're even without hope. But this is where we can't live off how we feel. This is where we have to live off what is true. No one in the Bible was more depressed than Jeremiah in the book of Lamentations. Everything had collapsed. He'd been preaching for over 30 years and had, at the most, two people respond in 30 years. The, the nation was taken into captivity. They wouldn't listen. They wouldn't return to you. He felt like an utter failure. He says he's in utter despair. But then he grabs a hold of himself. In verse 21 of chapter 3. And he says, this I recall to mind. Therefore, I have hope that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, O Lord. The fact is, Lord, sometimes we find ourselves in stretches of this trail that look utterly impossible. There's no way through. There's no way out. We're utterly hemmed in. There's no hope. But you ask us to trust you in the, in the darkest moments of life. How grateful we are that uh, when life gets dark, it's not dark to you. Darkness and light are alike to you. And you have a path. The psalmist said in Psalm 142.3, when my spirit was overwhelmed, you knew my path. There's a way out of this thing. But it's not of my own devices. It's not of my own making. It's by staying close to the shepherd. Remind us of these truths. Uh, you know each man's heart tonight? You know everything going on in each guy's life. We've all got our stuff. We need you. We need your help. We've got nowhere else to go. Why would we go anywhere else? You're God. And you're available. For this we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're back to Second Peter. And 
We're working our way through this timely book. It is timely because it, it was not a comfortable time for Christians. It was a time of great, intense persecution. It was a time where uh, there was great deception in the church. And Peter is um, just months away from death. If you've been with us in this study, we, we set the stage. First Peter was written around AD 64. There was an emperor that you're aware of named Nero, and he, he, he was out of his mind. He was insane, he was self-centered, he uh, utterly derelict in his life, and, but he wanted to be remembered as being a great, great emperor Rome was a great city. He thought it would be wonderful for his legacy if the city were to be destroyed and he could rebuild it and he would be talked about for centuries. So he set fire to the city and did not anticipate the backlash against him. So he began to spread rumors that took hold that it was the, the Christians who did this. So great persecution broke out. Tremendous persecution. People were burned alive. People were put on uh, light posts, uh, drenched in oil, and lit. Uh, literally burning flesh, people being burned alive would be the light that would provide light for the pathway going to Nero's uh, palace. Paul was beheaded during this time and Peter would be crucified upside down. Now, Nero died in AD 68. So this was, uh, first Peter was written around um, 64. Second Peter, roughly around 67, 68. But Peter was facing imminent death. If you've been with us in this study, you know this to be true. That's kind of the setting. It was a tough time to be a Christian. It was a tough time to be alive. Uh, it was a tough time to walk with Christ. It was a time of uh, great, uh, uh, great, great devastation, great despair. Sort of like you, if you can imagine living in London's, London when um, Hitler was sending the bombers over every night, uh, the Luftwaffe to bomb, and you didn't know if you'd live through the night or if your children would. It was just horrific. That's what these people were in. Tonight we're going to be in Second Peter. 1, verses 16 to 21. Um, I got four points on an outline. They all begin with A. I'm very proud of that for some reason. <laughs> I'm not sure why, but, you know, they teach you stuff like that in seminary. Try to get it all with the same... Anyway, I rarely do it. I pulled it off this time. So let me give you four points, and then we'll go back through them. The first one is apostolic succession. Apostolic succession. You were thinking about this this afternoon at 2.30, weren't you? <laughs> Apostolic succession. We'll get back to it. Uh, secondly, accusation of false teachers. Thirdly, argument of an eyewitness argument of an eyewitness. Fourth, argument of the authority of Scripture. Argument of the authority of Scripture. That's all contained in verses 16 to 21. Now, let's begin with apostolic succession. Uh, I'm not going to begin at verse 16. I'm going to go back to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, as he opens the letter. He says this, he says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ and first pope of Roman Catholicism, to those who have received a faith of the same kind of ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, you're not supposed to mess around with the text. I didn't do it, they did it. 
So this thing, apostolic succession, and by the way, let's read the text correctly. Simon Peter, a bondservant, an apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Why am I bringing up apostolic succession? It's a doctrine that the Roman Catholic Church holds. Um, in a nutshell, one of the themes of 2 Peter is the theme of authority. Authority. Everybody has an authority. Everybody. Bob Dylan, back in his Christian days, wrote a great song called, You Gotta Serve Somebody. It doesn't matter who you are. You might be the heavyweight champ. You might be this, or you might be that. You gotta serve somebody. Everybody is under authority. We live in a day and age where a lot of people don't want to be under any authority. But that's impossible. When we're kids, at least in my life, when I was a kid, I remember thinking, when I grow up, nobody's going to tell me what to do. Everybody tells me what to do. <laughs> and the thing is, they got authority to do it. You just can't be your own authority. It sounds good, but it doesn't work. Everybody is accountable to some authority. There is a difference between evangelical Christians who believe in the authority of the Bible and the Roman Catholic Church. Now, I've had emails in the last, I don't know, couple of years, guys saying, it seems to me that uh, you don't like Roman Catholic people. And my response to that is, where did you get that? Uh, I, I've never said it. That's not true. What I have a problem with is Roman Catholic teaching, which confuses people and does not line up with Scripture. In the Roman Catholic Church, you have, and this is why Martin Luther, who was a Roman Catholic priest, when he started, who couldn't find forgiveness with God, no matter what he did, he couldn't do enough good works, he couldn't do enough good works, he couldn't do enough good works. He would spend hours and hours and hours trying to remember every sin he'd ever com committed so that he confessed it to God and be forgiven. And he would fall asleep out of sheer exhaustion and he'd wake up after hours of doing that and he had no sense of peace because he knew there was some sin that he forgot. He was tortured. He was a tormented individual. He was a brilliant scholar. As he was studying the New Testament, he came across these verses in Galatians and in Romans that says the just shall live by faith. And he began, his eyes began to see that we are justified not by good works, but by grace. The grace of Christ. I've quoted the last two weeks, Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not a result of works. Roman Catholicism teaches, and they still teach, they had a council called the Council of Trent that reacted to Martin Luther's teachings that which is the Bible, basically, the book of Romans, that were justified by faith in Christ alone, they had this big council at Trent, and they dug in and said, we're not justified by grace, we're justified by works. And they've never deviated from that. So, the Roman Catholic Church has three authorities. They have the Bible... They have tradition. Tradition trumps the Bible. And then above tradition in the Bible, they have the Pope. Papal infallibility. That means he can't err. When he speaks from the chair, ex cathedra, um, I, I mean, it's, it's the ultimate authority. Uh, many of us are familiar with the quote from Lord Acton, the famous quote, uh, all power corrupts, but absolute power corrupts, absolutely. We know the quote, most of us don't realize that was made in reference to 
to the popes who had absolute power. So they have three authorities in the Roman Catholic Church, the Bible, tradition, the pope. In the Bible, you have the authority of the word of God, period. Ultimate authority. The living word, Jesus, the written word, the Bible. It's the word of God. And when they brought Luther up on charges, he says, my conscience is clear. I, I cannot go against the word of God. The word of God is the ultimate authority. Now the question is, what's your authority? The Roman Catholic Church has taught, you say, why are you getting into this? Well, because they have taught that Peter is the first pope and that he was chosen, this one man was chosen to lead the church and that he had the authority, this is where the popes come from, is from Peter. And then he appointed the, the next one and then dawned down through the ages until today. Um, when I started seminary and looked at the curriculum that over the next several years I was gonna take, I saw that there were three classes in church history and I thought, are you kidding me? Three classes that are required? Gosh, what a waste of time. They were fascinating, utterly fascinating. Uh, Bruce Shelley has written a book called Church History in Plain Language. Uh, excellent book, fascinating book. He talks about some of the different popes. Um, so, I had a young man tell me who was raised in an evangelical church a few years ago that he was thinking about becoming a Roman Catholic because he wanted to go back to the original faith. I mean, they were the first ones, the church at Rome. Actually, they, they weren't. There was the church at Rome, there was the church at Thessalonica, there was the church at Corinth, there was the church at Philippi, there was the church at Ephesus, there was the church at, you know, all kinds of churches. Now, what happened that was Rome was a significant city. And as time went by, uh, things changed. So when the apostles died, uh, the, God used the apostles to write scripture and when they died off, Scripture was closed. And, um, but there were still some men who we call the church fathers, and you can read their writings. I've got some of their writings in my library. They were the men who followed the apostles, who knew the apostles. And they would write about certain things, and then, you know, and the years go by. Here's what tends to happen in Christian churches and institutions and schools. Right around 50 years, false teaching begins to get a grip. It's, uh, it comes in through the back door, it's very subtle, and this is why often churches that were strong in the faith, seminaries that were strong in the faith, maybe you saw that Union Seminary this week has seminarians playing, praying and confessing sin to plants to plants, to green, to orchids. They're not kidding. At first I thought it was a something out of the Babylon Bee, it was a sarcastic piece. No, it's true. And then they defended it. They have gone, and they've been liberal for a long time. For a long time. But you see, once you go down that road, you just keep going. There's nothing to tether you, there's nothing to hold you back. So this is what happened in the early church, and this is why Peter is, is writing 2 Peter, because he wants them to know what the authority is, the true authority, and he wants them to know that they're in danger from false teachers. So as the years go by, a, in, instead of the church being led by a plurality of elders as it's supposed to, it starts shifting a little bit, and you've got one man kind of becoming the key guy. And then years go by and years go by, and then you got the church at Rome, and because it was so big and so large and so influential and had so much money, uh, da, 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 they started having these guys uh, get power. There was one of them, his name was Gregory. He was a pope. He was, uh, 
he, he, was, he was quite a leader. He actually was, um, this would have been about the sixth century. But, well, let me, just, let me give you a description from Shelley's book. Gregory not only yearned to advance the faith in distant places, but he took seriously his calling as a defender of orthodoxy, a defender of the faith. His teachers in the faith were Ambrose, Augustine, and Jerome, some of the solid guys that came after the apostles, but he lacked their intellectual abilities. He contributed no ideas and created no epic in theology. Here we go. But he formulated the common faith of his day and handed it on to the Catholic Church of the Middle Ages. Let me translate what that means. He started making up his own doctrine. So, here's a couple of examples. In baptism, God grants forgiving grace freely without any merit on man's part. That's not true. It's not in baptism. Baptism, baptism, God doesn't grant forgiving grace freely. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, there are some Christian groups that believe that you have to be baptized to be saved. But Paul said, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. The way that we're saved from our sin is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel and that he died in my place for my sins. <clears throat> Baptism is the outward expression, you see, of what has already occurred in my life, that Christ has pulled me in, opened my eyes, I've said, Lord Jesus, come into my life. That's when I'm saved. It's, re it's regeneration of the heart. Baptism is the outward sign that I remember years ago at Peninsula Bible Church there in Palo Alto, and in the 60s, you know how crazy the 60s were, but the Jesus movement is hit, hitting, and kids at Stanford are coming to know Christ. <clears throat> and this is pretty wild. When they come to know Christ, they take them right over to the fountain, and they baptize them. Just like the book of Acts. I remember driving down Pacific Coast Highway right around Corona Del Mar, Newport Beach, with a friend of mine. This would have been 70. And right as we hit that stoplight, what is that, Jubilee that comes down? I, know, what, I mean, what is it? Jamboree. Jamboree. <laughs> Very good. Whoa, you win the car. <laughs> it's in my pocket here somewhere. So, yeah, right at Jamboree. And there's cars everywhere. And you're just a few hundred yards from the beach. And my friend, he said, what's going on? You know, and he, he was from out of state, just recently moved in there. <clears throat> I said, the surf's up. There's no other reason. There's big waves. So we parked, and it's a residential area, and we're walking down, and then there's these bluffs, and then you look down. And I'm looking for the big waves. And I look down to the bluffs, and there are about 1,000 people, and you had pastors from Calvary Chapel, Chuck Smith, baptizing these kids in the water. I still get a chill up my spine. I looked at that, and I said, that's a book of Acts. <laughs> and it was. It was unbelievable. It was unbelievable. But see, they'd already trusted Christ. So right off the bat, this guy says, it's not baptism. Baptism doesn't save you. Baptism is the first sign of discipleship, that you have been saved. Okay. Uh, God grants forgiving grace freely without any merit on man's part. But, Gregory said, for sins committed after baptism, do you sin after you're baptized? Oh, yeah. Well, man must make atonement by penance. Oh, that's right. I remember reading that in Romans. For either man himself by penance, penance punishes sin in himself, or God does taking vengeance on him, smites him. That's utter nonsense. That's not in the Bible. That guy made that up. Yet that's, that's what Catholics are taught. But you see, 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from most unrighteousness. 
all unrighteousness. I've already been saved. Well, why do I have to confess my sin? Because when I'm walking through life, I get dirty. My feet get dirty. I have dirty thoughts. I have dirty attitudes. Yeah, I'm saved. I've been justified. But I'm walking with Christ in fellowship. So, did, did like Howard Henry told that story. He was counseling with this couple, and they'd been married for 40 years, and they weren't doing great. And he's talking to them, and at one point, the wife in tears said, my husband hasn't told me that he's, he, he loves me since our wedding day. And Hendricks looked at the guy and he said, is that true, sir? And he said, it is true. I told her on our wedding day I loved her, and until I revoke it, it's still in force. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Oh, my gosh. What a joy you are to be around. Yeah, you're married. Yeah, you made vows. But you know what? It might help now and then to say, you know what? I messed up. I'm sorry I screwed up. I'm really sorry I said that. I'm really sorry I put words in your mouth. I'm really sorry I thought the worst. It's a relationship. Uh, Gregory wasn't done. Uh, He went on and said, the greater our sins, the more we must do to make up for them. Well, dadgummit, that's the gospel. Where's grace? There is no grace. That is not the gospel. But fortunately, sinners have the help of the saints. The belief in the intercession of the saints and the custom of appealing to them to use their influence with Christ. What? You pray to the saints, Gregory said. Where did he get this? Well, you pray to the saints because they, you know, they got more pull with Jesus than, oh, oh, yeah, Mary has more pull with Jesus. You know, in fact, their teaching actually says Jesus can be a little stern, a little difficult, but Mary kind of comes in. Oh, this is true. You can read it. What's the Bible say? First Timothy 2, 5, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. You don't pray to the saints. You don't pray to Mary. You don't pray to... It's Jesus. Another aid that Gregory came up with to help us in our faith was holy relics. Gregory encouraged the collection and veneration of holy remains of the saints and martyrs. Locks of hair, fingernails, toes, pieces of clothing. Oh, yeah. I remember Paul teaching that in Galatians. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's utter nonsense. And he goes on and says, Gregory taught, and most of his contemporaries believe, that these items possess great powers, including that of self-defense. So if you've got one of the uh, apostles' lower molars, I mean, really, that's what they're saying. And you go to some of these churches, and they got the stuff. They got the eyebrows of Jesus. They got the, the fingernail of Joseph. They got the... I mean, they're dead serious. They're flat out dead serious. For it'll offend you. Really? Psalm 27. The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom then shall I fear? This is utter man-made religion. And it all comes down to authority. It got so bad as the ages went by that there was a pope. This, this, is, this is classic. By the name of Innocent III. He wasn't. He was the third, but he wasn't innocent. <laughs> what happened? The papacy became so powerful in Europe that the princes and the governors lived in fear of the pope. The pope's government was a truly universal monarchy, and this is why Acton said, all power corrupts absolutely, but absolute power corrupts absolutely. Um, In the hands of a strong leader, the papacy could overshadow all secular monarchs, all, all kings. And in fact, Innocent III told the princes of Europe that the papacy was like the sun while the kings were like the moon. As the moon received its light from the sun, so kings derived their power from the pope. 
The papacy's chief weapons in support of this authority were spiritual penalties. Almost everyone believed in heaven and hell and in the Pope's management of the grace to get to one and avoid the other. Um, popes could excommunicate. They could excommunicate not only individuals, they could excommunicate entire nations and send them to hell. They believed. Remember reading that in scripture? Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth, Matthew 28. They're saying all authority had been given to men. That's the difference. So if Peter's the first pope, why didn't he say anything about it in his last will and testament in 2 Peter? This would have been the place to have said it. Would, would you agree? Because he says in 13 of chapter 1, I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, my body, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly body is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus has made it clear to me. Well, if it's imminent, why wouldn't he tell us about this whole papacy thing? Because it never happened. What they use is Matthew 16. Since we're doing Bible study, let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew 16. So in Matthew 16, you, you know, uh, when I, my, the first church, the first church I pastored was in California in the Bible Belt of San Francisco, the, which is extremely small. But, you know, just a small little church, an offshoot from Peninsula Bible down in Palo Alto. And uh, about 60, 65% of the people in our church uh, have been raised Roman Catholic. And I'll tell you what's really interesting is when a Roman Catholic gets a hold of the New Testament and they start reading it. And they go, what? Jesus had brothers and sisters? Because they were taught that Mary was a perpetual virgin. No, the Bible didn't say that. Oh, she's co-mediatrix with Jesus. No, Jesus, he's one mediator. This stuff is just, it just kept being made up. Uh, they based it on Matthew 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, if you ever get a chance to go to Israel, hopefully you'll get to Caesarea Philippi up in the north by Mount Hermon. So Caesarea Philippi, when you go in there, it's uh, a real open kind of uh, a state park kind of feel to it. And there are picnic benches and families. And then you make your way, and, and you keep seeing this massive rock. It's two, 300 feet high. And when Jesus spoke to Peter, that's Caesarea Philippi. He's got this huge, massive rock behind him. And he says to the disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, who do you say that I am? Peter said, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Son of the living God. Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father is who is in heaven. Watch this, here we go. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. This is what they base this whole thing on, that he's the first pope. I also say that you are Peter, upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, if you have a New American Standard Bible, in the text next to the name Peter, there'll be a number one, and you can look in the margin, I say that you are also Peter. So that, number one, it's Petros, which means stone. Okay, so Peter, you're a stone. I say to you that you were Peter. That's what his name meant. And upon this rock, remember he's standing next to this two, three hundred foot rock, and out of the bottom of it comes this small, clear, beautiful, crystal clear stream that works its way through that park and then down towards the uh, Sea of Galilee, and then it feeds into the Sea of Galilee, and then the south end it comes out, and it's the headwaters of the Jordan River. Pretty significant stuff here. I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock, there's a number next to the word rock, number two, you look in the margin, it's Petra, large rock. 
So in the context, Jesus says, I say to you, Peter, you're a small chip of stone. And upon this rock. <laughs> Who's the rock? Jesus. Uh, scripture interprets Scripture. So go to Ephesians 2, verse 19. Doesn't have to be any question about this whatsoever. Ephesians 2, 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. The saints are the holy ones. The saints, you're called a saint, I'm called a saint. We're holy because Jesus made us holy. We're still sinners on the earth, but we belong to him. It's not somebody who died and did 47 miracles and, you know, whose uh, toenail can uh, get rid of your uh, laryngitis. That's, that's nonsense. We're the saints. Okay? So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Watch this. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Jesus is the rock. There's no pope. There's no apostolic succession. What Peter is saying here, and this is part of the whole message of Peter, about authority, false teachers are going to come in. Yes, and you stand on the authority of the word of God, period. 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 That's the authority. Second point. Peter's taking on, in this passage, the accusation of the false teachers. These guys are causing tremendous confusion. If we go back to 2 Peter, he refers to them, and he's real clear, because they've made an accusation against him. Well, what kind of accusation? They are accusing Peter of teaching myths and fairy tales. That's what they're doing. Look at verse uh, 16. For we did not follow. When he says we, he means himself as well as the other apostles, hand chosen by Christ. We did not follow cleverly devised tales or fables. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking about the second coming. And just as Jesus came first and was born in a manger to a virgin, and then he went to the cross, he died, he was buried, he rose on the third day, then he ascended 40 days later, and he's at the right hand of the Father, and he goes forever to make your intercession for us. That was his first coming. Jesus is coming back. And they've been teaching the second coming of Christ. And these false teachers are saying, look at the apostles, you're getting ready to die. All the apostles are dying out. And you said he was going to come. He's not coming. If you really wonder if this was an accusation, we'll look at it in depth in a few weeks. But look at first, uh, 2 Peter 3, verse 3. Peter says, Know that first of all, in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? I thought you said he was coming back. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Um, when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world was at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth, watch this, are being reserved for fire. We won't be destroyed by climate change. It'll be the judgment of God in the last day. That's what the word of God says. Just telling you, what's your authority? Kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. Watch this. But don't let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. God's got a different calendar than you've got and I've got. So what's it been? About 30-some years since Jesus uh, ascended to the Father? Well, where's this coming? Where's this coming? Well, if a day, one day is like a thousand years, how long has he been gone? I don't know. 47 minutes? I mean, that's it. Hey, he's coming back, and when he comes, it's going to be swift, it's going to be sudden. And everybody's going to know it. 
But he's not back yet. He's taken these guys on. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but to all to come to repentance. It's the mercy of God. But see, they're just ripping him up and the other apostles one side or the other. You can't believe this stuff. Now, there's another hidden issue here. And uh, David Helms, in his commentary, does a good job. I'll let him describe it. You guys still with me? Okay. These are false teachers. Where's the promise of his coming? So Helm says this charge against Peter was truly insidious, the fullness of which we will take up later in future chapters in the book. At this point, however, know this. Their rejection of the second coming had more to do with their desire to dismiss the notion that everyone will be held personally accountable for moral and ethical infidelity than anything else. They did not want to be judged. What's the mantra of our day? Don't judge me. Don't judge me. Oh, don't judge me. Now, we're real quick when someone does wrong to us. We want them judged swiftly. But don't judge me. We're all going to be judged. See, because when he comes back, he's going to redeem his people. Revelation 20. Apostle John, in his vision, says in 20 verse 11... I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and the books were open and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades are thrown in the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name is not written, was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. So when the Lord redeems us from our sins, calls us, elects us, <laughs> regenerates us, opens our eyes and we say, Jesus, come into my life, forgive me of my sin, and we embrace Jesus in the gospel, our names are written in the book of life. So we will not enter into judgment because Jesus, the judgment that was due upon us, Jesus took upon him on the cross. So what these guys are all about, really the core reason, oh, he's not coming back, he's not coming back, and I will not be judged. I can do anything I want. It's amazing how false doctrine gets into the church. It's amazing how this idea that hell does not exist has crept in to the evangelical church. How could a God who is good, how could a God of mercy send people to hell? Well, he is a God. You know, Romans says there is no injustice with God. God cannot be unjust. It's impossible. He can't do it. So see, the problem is, we, but we don't see how that could be, I, I, I think it was R.C. Sproul who said one time, he could not think about hell more than about 90 seconds before just utterly losing it. It's, it's so horrible, it's so horrific. But you see, this is why the gospel is such good news. If you want to continue to be your own God, if you want to continue to go your own way, if you want to continue to make your own path and think you're going to escape judgment, you're kidding yourself. None of us are going to escape judgment except through Jesus. There's this whole movement because we, we worship the freedom of sexuality, whatever you want to do, homosexuality, adultery, whatever you want to do. Although God says there's only one sexual relationship that he blesses and endorses. Physical intimacy between a husband and wife, period. Anything else is sin. I mean, that's it. That's what you call narrow. That's not real popular. So when I have young people raised in Christian homes who are in homosexual relationships tell me that they're saved and that God understands and they're, you know, they're not changing. The problem is on our end. No. The problem is you want to be your own authority. No, no, he's, uh, I'm, I'm a Christian, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven. 
Uh, no, you're not. Read the Word of God. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be. You're saying, oh yeah, it's no sweat with God. So we write Christian books saying, oh yeah, those sexual, those verses that seem like God is, you know, that's not sexual immorality. He's cool with it. He's cool. He's just cool. Well, you better hope, you better hope you're right. If there's no hell, if there's no judgment, if there's no punishment, why did Jesus come and go to the cross? Why did he bear the shame and the suffering and the humiliation? If there's nothing to it anyway, why would he do that? It makes no sense. He did it to save us from that. I, I've told this story before. I actually used it in Point Man 30 years ago. I will never forget this guy as long as I live. Um, I'm pastoring in California, and one Sunday, here's this guy and his wife and three or four kids, and um, came up, introduced himself, and you know, reached out, and he had uh, just told me a few things, and he'd been an executive in a large corporation, and had just resigned and taken um, over as the head of a Christian ministry. Uh, obviously a huge pay cut. Anyway, he said, hey, I'd like to get lunch sometime. So we set up a lunch, and I drive up to his office and walk into the ministry, and they show me his office. And when I walk in, he's real nice-looking, uh, blonde out front, the receptionist. And, oh, yeah, come on in. And so, you know, we walk in, and let's go grab lunch. So we have lunch, and we're talking. And... Uh, Anyway, we're driving back. I'm driving back to his office and drop him off. And as we're talking, somehow we, we this book about marriage. He might have mentioned it, or I mentioned a book on marriage. I think he mentioned it. And I said, oh, yeah, I just read that book. He said, that's a great book. I said, it is. I just finished it. He said, yeah, I, uh, I read it, and now I'm studying uh, with my friend. We're meeting every week and studying that book. And, uh, man, it's been incredible. And it's, we're halfway through it. It's really helped me in my relationship with my wife, and it's really helped her in her relationship with her husband. And it was like a little red light went off. And um, I mean, I assumed he was studying with the guy. And, and I, I, I have a very uh, sophisticated approach to counseling. If, uh, <laughs> if I see a scab, I pick it. David Roper used to say, Hit God's men hard because they bounce. God's men bounce. They may not like the truth, but they might reel, but they'll bounce back. But you've got to tell the truth. And when this guy said, he's studying a book on marriage with his, I said, can I ask you a personal question? He said, sure. They always, they always say yes, you can ask a personal question. <laughs> I've never had anybody say no. He said, sure. He said, the person you're studying the book on marriage with, the gal, is that your blonde receptionist out front? He didn't like that. And I'm driving this van, and I'm in the driver's seat, and he's over here. And he wouldn't say anything. He wouldn't look at me. I said, hey, I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, but... I'll tell you this, if you keep studying that book, you're going to wind up in the sack with that gal. And i never forget this. With his left hand, because there was a gap between the seats, he said, that'll never happen, that'll never happen, that'll never happen. And two months later, he left his wife, she left her husband, and they all had kids. And they ran off together to find happiness. I always wondered what happened to him because I never saw him again. If you know Christ, do you think he's going to let you do that and get away with it? The first question is, are you a true believer? That's the first question. Or are you just a professing believer? But if you're a true believer, you're just asking for the discipline of God. Big time. I mean, he will take you to the woodshed and work you over if you're resisting
if you belong to him because he loves you. I'm not trying to, he's trying to save your life. But this, look like, this looks like the best way out. It looks like the only alternative. No. And there are false teachers who'll tell you that's okay. And it's not okay. Third point. The argument of an eyewitness. Back in 2 Peter 16. We did not follow cleverly but devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's really going to come back. And then he says this, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Uh, What he's talking about is Luke 9. So Matthew, Mark, Luke So in Luke 9, it gives us the account of what happened. Yeah, they're saying, no, you know, there's no no second coming. There'll be no judgment. I mean, this is ridiculous. If he was going to come, he would have come by now. So Luke 9, 28, some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter, John, and James. He took three disciples with him went up to the mountain to pray. While he was praying, the appearance of his faith became different. His clothing became white and gleaming. It was the glory of God all over him. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, this is classic Peter, "Uh, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Not realizing what he was saying, which was about half of what he did, like me and like you. Hey, Lord, I got a great idea. Just sign off on this thing, and I'll take care of the building program. While he was still saying this, A cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Period. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, but they kept silent, reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. That's what he's talking about in 2 Peter. Hey, guys, this is no myth. This is no Walt Disney story. I was on the mountain. I got a glimpse of the glory of God, of what it's going to be like when he comes back. That's why he was willing to die. This guy who was the coward and denied Christ. The Lord got a hold of him. He fell but he was restored, and now he's facing death head on because he matured in Christ. Fourthly, he drives home the argument for the authority of Scripture. Second Peter, verse 19. So we have the prophetic word made more sure. You're just talking about an experience. We have the prophetic word made more sure to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. They were in a dark place. They were in dark times. But thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Until the day dawns, the morning star, Jesus arises in your hearts Watch this. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. We we didn't get together and make this stuff up. We didn't formulate this. But, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. Now, here's another thing that is being savagely attacked. 
in our day and time. And it's been savagely attacked uh, for, since the 1700s with the German liberal critics and attacking the scripture. And Second Peter is attacked more than any other book in the New Testament because it's so strong in the word of God. Matthew Harmon writes this. Peter further explains his claim that prophecy has a divine origin by stating that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. The verb rendered produced has the sense to bring a thought or idea into circulation. True biblical prophecy is not something created by the will of man. It is a word from God to humanity mediated through his prophets. Our spiritual birth has its roots in the will of God. The same is true of prophecy. He is coming back. And he will judge. If your name's not written in the book of life. In Jeremiah... When God called the prophet, he instructed him to speak what the Lord had said to him. Jeremiah 1, 7 through 10. By contrast, false prophets are not sent by God and merely speak the deceit of their own minds. Jeremiah 14, 14. The work of God did not stop with his commissioning of the prophet, but continued as the prophets were carried along by the Holy Spirit. One more paragraph. These verses in 2 Peter are also foundation to our understanding of Scripture. By His Spirit, God inspired men to write down His very words, yet they did so through their unique personalities and manner of speaking and writing. How gracious of God to reveal Himself through His words so that we can know who He is and how we should relate to Him and others. The big criticism the false teachers make in our day, evangelical, quote, false teachers, is that the Word of God is really not authoritative. Um, so, I got time. R.C. Sproul, years ago, did a brief article titled, Does the Bible Have Errors? Follow me closely here. Okay, we're on the home stretch. If you got a B12 little vitamin shot, take it. Does the Bible have errors? And then he starts by saying this. The Bible is the word of God which errors. This is the mantra of what's called neo-Orthodox theology. And it's prevalent in Christian churches and Christian seminaries. Uh, neo meaning new. The Bible is the word of God which errors. From the advent of neo-Orthodox theology, and this goes back to a guy named Karl Barth in the 40s and 50s, the Swiss theologian that Francis Schaeffer took on and met with, and Barth got really mad at him because Schaeffer confronted him, and he didn't like that. Schaeffer pressed him on this. See, he didn't want the Word of God to be inerrant because he had an ongoing affair going on for about 35 years as he was a pastor and theologian. It didn't come out until after his death. That's just an aside. This assertion has become a mantra among those who want to have a high view of Scripture while avoiding the academic liability of asserting biblical infallibility and inerrancy. That the Word of God is without error. So Fuller Seminary in Los Angeles started out believing in the inerrancy of the Word of God. But then they changed their doctrinal statement to say that the Word of God is authoritative in matters of faith and practice, but not on all things. So the three top profs at Fuller Seminary left because basically they were buying in to the Bible as the Word of God, which errs. It's only authoritative in faith and practice, whatever that means. But this statement, Sproul says, represents the classic case of having one's cake and eating it too. It's the quintessential oxymoron. Let's look again at this untenable theological formula. If we eliminate the first part, the Bible is, we would then have left the word of God which errors. If we parse it further and scratch out the word of and which, we reach the bottom line, which is God errors. 
The idea that God errs in any way, in any place, or in any endeavor is repugnant to the mind as well as the soul. Pure biblical criticism reaches the nadir of biblical vandalism. How could any sentient creature conceive of a formula that speaks of the word of God as errant? Perhaps we can resolve the antinomy. An antinomy is an apparent, uh, an apparent contradiction. Give me a second. An antinomy. I need a vitamin B12 pellet. <laughs> an antinomy is an apparent contradiction between two facts. God is sovereign, but man is a free moral agent. How can both of those be true? God chooses, but man has a free will. How do you, Romans 9, Romans 10. It's an antinomy. How can both be true? God has no problem with it. We do, with our very, very limited bandwidth. He says, perhaps we can resolve this by saying that the Bible originates with God's divine revelation which carries the mark of his infallible truth, but this revelation is mediated through human authors who, by virtue of their humanity, taint and corrupt that original revelation by their penchant for error. Karl Barth said to err is human. Insisting that by denying error, one is left with a Bible that merely seems to be human, but in reality it's only a product of a phantom humanity. What he's Bart's big line was, the Bible is not the Word of God, it contains the Word of God. Okay, so the whole thing's not the Word of God? No. But it contains the Word of God? Okay. So how do I know in the Bible what is the Word of God? You know what it comes down to? The portions I like is the Word of God. And the portions I don't like... So the Babylon Bee recently reported that Bible publishers are coming out with uh, five shades, uh, five new shades of, of, of white out for progressive Christians, liberal Christians. And it comes also with a pair of scissors. Depending on your level of uh, discomfort with the text. See, with this, if, if, if the Bible contains the word of God, we're Thomas Jefferson. You know what Thomas Jefferson did? He took, a scissor, he took scissors to the Bible. He came up with his own Bible. He edited the Word of God. We have people in churches who say, oh, I'm a Christian, I'm committed to Christ, to the Word of God. In seminaries, they're not committed to the Word of God. They're committed to the portions that they are comfortable with. That's how you get into this position that Oh, you know, the sexuality thing. God's cool. God's cool. He's cool with it. He's not cool with it. But you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus that you abstain from sexual immorality. And then Sproul says, who would argue against the human proclivity for error? And see, this is the big idea. God couldn't give an authoritative word because he used human writers. Indeed, that proclivity is the reason for the biblical concepts of inspiration and divine superintendence of Scripture. Classic Orthodox theology has always maintained that the Holy Spirit overcomes human error in producing the biblical text. Stay with me, we're almost done. Critics of inerrancy argue that the doctrine is an invention of 17th century Protestant scholasticism, the academics, where reason trumped revelation which would mean it was not the doctrine of the reformers, Martin Luther, John Calvin, etc. For example, they note that Martin Luther never used the term inerrancy. That is correct. What he said was that the scripture never errs. Oh, okay. Neither did John Calvin use the term. He said that the Bible should be received as if we heard its words audibly from the mouth of God. The reformers, though not using the term inerrancy, clearly articulated the concept. Irenaeus lived long before the 17th century, as did, as did Augustine, guys that followed the apostles. Paul the apostle and Jesus 
These all, among others, clearly taught the absolute truthfulness of Scripture. The church's defense of inerrancy rests upon the church's confidence in the view of Scripture held and taught by Jesus himself. We wish to have a view of Scripture that is neither higher nor lower than his view. And his view is that the Bible is the Word of God and that he is the author. In the beginning was the Word, John 1, 1, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God and dwelt among us. Jesus was born of a virgin. He was born of Mary, who had never had physical intimacy with a man. How could he be born sinless through the body of a sinful woman? The same way that God could give his word through sinful men and then not be tainted with error. If you're God, that's no big deal. The Bible is the authority. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Psalm 119 says, The sum of thy word is truth. Help us, each man here, to stop and think before we go to bed tonight, what's the authority in my life? Truly, down in my gut, what's my authority? Who was first in my life? And, Lord, we have to make this decision many times throughout a day. And we're not only being attacked from outside the church, we're being attacked on this from inside the church. Help us to heed the words of Peter. Help us to pay attention to your word. As Deuteronomy 32 says, it is not an idle word for you. It is your life. Help us with these things. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.